How important is faith to the believer? Hebrews 11 tells us that without it, it is impossible to please God. Not highly likely to please God, but impossible to please God. Ephesians 2 tells us that salvation comes by faith. A believer is to walk by faith, according to 2 Corinthians 5. That means that our life is characterized by faith. And at the end of Romans 14, it says that anything that does not proceed or come from faith is sin. Faith is not just important to the believer. We can say with confidence that it's vital. It's vital to the believer. But there are so many misconceptions about faith. The psychologist will say, have faith in the goodness of man. But we know from the scripture that man is not inherently good. And to put our faith in man will eventually only lead to more disappointment. The scientist says you must put aside your faith in order to objectively study the physical, scientific evidence to find truth. Many times science views faith as a blind leap, but we know that faith is based on the evidence of the truth of God, the author of truth, God himself, who is called the truth. The religious will sound that way when they say it is good to have faith. But is all faith good? Sincere faith in the wrong thing is still sincerely wrong. We may even hear well-meaning Christians quote Romans 8.28 to a friend who is going through a serious struggle that you need to have more faith because all things work together for good but seem to forget the second part of that verse that says according to his purpose. God will work things out for good according to God's standard of good, which could be totally different from the human standard of good. God's idea of good may be allowing a person to go through a trial to make them the man or woman that he needs them to be. God's ultimate good may even be taking a a person home to be with them. There are even those that say, if you just have enough faith, you'll never be sick, you'll be blessed with riches, you won't have any trials, and you'll live a life of ease. If this is true about faith, and even Jesus, who didn't have a place to lay his head, according to Matthew 8.20, didn't live up to this kind of faith. So what is true biblical faith? Look at James 2. Would you stand with me? James 2 Beginning in verse 14, read with me. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith 
was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. God, as we look at this passage, sometimes it is difficult to understand. So I pray, God, you would send understanding for us today through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would know what this passage is saying, that we would be challenged by it, God, that we would be changed by it, that we would leave here different today talking and studying about this biblical faith. God, I pray we would have dynamic faith, not dead faith. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This passage has caused some controversy over time. On the surface, James' teaching here seems to stand in contrast to Paul's teaching that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. But when we dig a bit deeper, we will see they don't contradict at all. Paul's writing in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, I wrote it there on your sheet, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast." How many times have we used this very scripture to prove there's no way that we can ever earn our salvation? And that is totally accurate. But then this morning we read James 2.24, and I've written it right underneath, uh, that says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And I sort of scratch my head and say, wait a minute, on the surface this looks like a contradiction. How is this reconciled? Because both passages are talking about true, saving faith. The key here is to understand the word works used in both passages. In fact, underline or circle in those verses, that word works. In the Ephesians passage, Paul is saying that a person cannot be justified before God by his works. We cannot. Namely, the works of of the law. You see, people in Paul's day were still saying, no, the law is how we're justified. We continue to follow after the law. And Paul was saying, no, you cannot be justified by the law. That was never the intent. That was to show you that you were flawed. That was the measuring stick. Now Jesus is that measuring stick. We compare our lives to him and we see that we are flawed. However, Paul does go on in Ephesians 2.10 to say this, for we are his, God's workmanship his masterpiece, his work of art, his poem, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is saying that if we are created in Christ Jesus, good works will be the natural result. Good works will be the natural result. That's consistent with verses like 2 Corinthians 5.17, where it says, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. James also uses the word works, but these are the works done after a person claims to be saved or is truly saved. Look closely again at verse 
24. Look at it with me as I read it. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Those first two words, you see, we sort of blow past those because we use that as, as a reflective phrase. Well, you see, and we add a sentence to it. But here it's a directive used by James. You, the audience, people, God, our audience, you actually see. You see, uh, this, and read again verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And that's word justified. Two, justified, is that saving justification or is it being justified to our audience? Uh, it means proven. This justified here means proven. There is a proof that this person has been changed. Some would say bona fide. They're a bona fide believer by their works and not by faith alone. People can say they have faith in God, but how do we really know that they have faith? By their actions, right? By their actions or lack thereof. By their actions. So let's go back to verse 14 and pick out these things that characterize true faith and the things that are really not true faith at all. Again, in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? I had a coworker in my former job. I worked at Sears Automotive, mainly in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And in that area, there was a large number of Jehovah's Witnesses. They had a huge population of Jehovah's Witnesses. And so a lot of the people that worked at Sears were of that idea. And they would challenge me all the time. They knew I was in seminary. They would come and ask questions. And there were some pretty good stumpers. I mean, they study to, believe it or not, stump Christians and really make converts out of Baptists a lot of times to convert them over. And they'll ask you questions. And man, it made me really dig in and get grounded to understand what I believe. But there was this lady, a coworker, tell me that she, she could not be a Baptist because the Baptists she knew said they were Christians, but they were no different from the world, would go out and sin and say they would just ask for forgiveness. That was tough to look at her. Now, you got to understand, too, Jehovah's Witnesses, their salvation is very works-oriented. I mean, they're going to do all this service, they do all this studying, and they check off their hours. And part of that is to earn their salvation, and not just their salvation, but a higher rank in their area of salvation. So it's very, very much works-based. But I said something to you. I told her that if a person said they were a Christian and used this as a license to sin then one of two things was wrong here in this person's life. First of all, they didn't understand that God would discipline them for their sin if they continued in it. To say in our minds, you know what, I'm gonna enjoy this sin, I'm gonna go down here and just and do that, and later on I'll just go back and ask God to forgive me, careful. Be careful because God says he will chasten us he will discipline us. In essence, he will judge us. Now, it may not be hellfire judgment. Once you're saved, that's settled. But can God judge us because of our sin? Yeah, what can he bring in our lives? I mean, in, in 1 Corinthians, we see that people who ate of the Lord's Supper unworthily, these were believers. It says some are sick among you, right? Sickly among you because they didn't examine themselves. It says even that some weren't just sick, but they had died because they didn't examine themselves. God will allow judgment to come on the life of a believer if he continues in his sin 
uh, long enough. He will do that. Now, again, not hellfire judgment, but judgment. But judgment. I said this, though. I said it's probably the second thing I'm about to say. This is probably the real case. They were never really saved at all. Because they were not changed. And their works were proving that. This verse tells us that faith is not just saying you have faith. It's not just saying you have faith. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Folks, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Works prove who we are. Here we see James giving an example of what faith by works looks like. Truly helping someone who is truly in need. Now let me talk about that for just a minute. Sadly to say, there are those who have tried to succeed in taking advantage, advantage of our church and other, and other churches, and they've done it. People are out there who are trying to get money. They'll, they'll come up with a, a, a story. Some of you have heard them, and they're good at it. But they want you to give them money for something that we would never approve of. So what do we do as a church, and what should you do personally when really trying to help someone? Because here it says we're supposed to be helping, right? So what do we do? Let me give you three main things, things that we do here at our church. The first thing is this, ask for discernment. Boy, somebody's walking up to you. Maybe you're at the gas station. That's a lot of times where it is. You can say, God, give me discernment right here of what I'm going to say to this person or ask this person because I do want to help somebody, but I want truly to be helped, right? Uh, here's the next thing. Determine the true need. And then here's the last thing. Make sure you're truly helping and not enabling a person to continue down a bad path. We have to be very careful. So what are the basic needs? Food, clothing, shelter, Right? food, clothing, and shelter. Be very careful when a person is asking you for cash. You have no way to monitor how that is spent. Our church, our benevolence committee, which is made up of deacons, have made it a policy that we never give a person cash. We will help pay a bill that covers a basic need. We may even help a person with fuel that is trying to get to a family member and is in a pinch. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me stop right there. Let me give you an example. I had a lady come in one time. It's been years ago. She came in and she had this story. I, my mom up in such and such state, we'll say Virginia, I'm traveling through. I'm out of gas. I need money for gas. I'm like, you need gas? She said, yeah. I said, well, we got an account right down here with the gas station. Come on, let's go down there. I'll fill your cup, car up with gas and get you there. She's like, well, you, you don't have to do that. I said, I don't mind. I really don't think I mind. We don't give cash. So I'm going down there. So I said, you go up pump your gas, I'll be inside, and I'll pay for your gas. So I'm in, I go in there, I'm going to, I'm expecting 10, 15 minutes for pumping her gas. I mean, it was just like a minute later, the clerk comes up and says, um, that'll be $1.27. I'm like, huh? Okay, so I paid the money, I go out there, I said, I looked at the lady, I said, she said, well, I said, I thought you said your car was empty. She said, well, I, maybe I, did, I didn't realize how full it really was. I'm like, Okay, $1.27. She said, can I get some food? I said, well, no, I think we'll just pay for the gas. I mean, people will do that, folks. For money, if they have a habit, if they have a drug habit and an alcoholism habit, they will tell you, they'll sell, you, they'll sell out their own family to get money from you. 
Be very careful in giving people cash. So what do we do here? Uh, you got you to be careful uh, paying a bill sometimes because what they'll do is they'll keep their money for their, their bad, sinful habit and have you pay their electric bill and hang on to their money. You got to be careful with that. So how do you, what do you do with that? We have a screening process at the church. They come in, they fill out a form, we call references. Uh, we have several in Concord that we can call. If they list a, a church home, we'll even call their pastor and say, hey, is this person a freeloader? kind of a beggar kind of person, or do they really need help? And a lot of times we can get the answer. We can find out, because folks, here's the deal. We take up an offering after every Lord's Supper. We budget money aside every year to really help people. And the last thing we want to do is what this verse says, to turn somebody away that really needs help and say, be warm and filled and not take care of them and help them. We want to do that. But we also want, don't want to be taken because we know there are professional beggars out there that can take us. We've got to be very careful. We've got to be good steward. I remember uh, what Alan Bloom uh, would do is he would go this, do the same thing and fill up a person's car with gas. I remember him telling the story. While the car was filling, he would make small talk and witness to the person standing there. And as they would finish up, uh, filling up the car and closing, he said, hey, I, I want to pray with you. And I want to I pray a prayer. And I want you to pray the prayer after me. Repeat it with me as I pray this. He would say something like this. God, I thank you for this gas that you provided. God, I thank you for this gas you provided. I know that it comes from your people who faithfully give it through their tithes and offerings. And you can repeat that. And God, if I'm being dishonest with this money being used to buy my gas, buy my gas, I pray that you would strike me dead. <laughs> Person, you know, Pete go like, what? I don't know that we need to go that far. But I, I thought about praying that prayer sometimes just to see what happens, right, Ken? <laughs> Folks, benevolence funds are in place to help someone through a difficult time. That's why they're there. If those difficult times continue to be frequent, then maybe the true need is not paying another bill for them. It's sitting down with them and helping them with a budget. Helping them understand that they need to learn to live within their, their means, right? And our uh, benevolence committee is willing to do that our church and our folks are willing to do that. Uh, folks in our church are willing to do that and have done that, have done that for folks. Here's my point. We've got to find out what the true need is, right? And really help, and really help. I tell you all this to illustrate this passage that is basically saying our faith is proven by our works, not our words alone. And an example of those works is truly helping a person who is truly in need. Read on with me in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? A familiar story of an old Scotsman who operated, uh, tells of an old Scotsman who operated a rowboat to transport passengers. On one oar, he had written the word faith, while the other bore the word works. The point of the story, of course, is that pulling on either oar alone would simply make one go around and around in circles. Both oars must be used to, to make any progress at all. Well, there's a lot of truth in that, isn't there? They go hand in hand. Faith works. Faith works. They go 
hand in hand. In James 14 to 17 that we read, James is addressing the person who has faith but does not have works. In verses 18 to 20, he is addressing the person that has works and not faith. But what he says is here, you can't separate faith and works. They go together. Do you know where the imbalance of works over faith happens many times? In children, with children. When children are thinking about becoming a believer, let me, let me illustrate. They see a sibling get baptized. They want to be baptized. They see a friend respond to an invitation. Maybe they're peeking and they see that friend raise their hand or go out. They got to raise their hand. I see it and they go out. You know, they want to do the same thing their friend has done. They may even see the attention that that person got for doing that and they want that attention. And those of us that work with children have to be so careful that a child is not trying to get attention, do something for the wrong reason, and then are deceived into thinking they're saved. But what if that child sees others and is truly convicted? As church leaders and parents, grandparents, we so have to pray that God will give us the discernment to know the difference, don't we? On one side, I don't want a child to be deceived. And on the other hand, I don't want to push away a child who's under conviction of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Can I give you a few things that have helped me over the years to discern this? I know there are a lot of grandparents and parents in here who have little ones. Maybe even at the age, I'm working with the third through fifth graders in Awana. A lot of them, maybe even a little bit younger than that, are starting to ask questions. And parents are like, what do we do? And maybe even the first question they ask, they think, oh, they want to get saved. And they rush to, to push that child to make a decision they're not really ready to make. Let me give you a few things that will help you, that have helped me through the years. First thing is this, always ask open-ended questions. Always ask open-ended questions. Do you want to go to heaven? That is not an open-ended question. Who in their right mind is going to say, nope, don't want to go to heaven? They're going to say yes. That's, a, that's not an open-ended question. Do you know that Jesus died for your sin? Yep, great question but not an open-ended question, right? It's a yes-no answer. What are some great uh, questions? We gotta be careful that we don't, in courtroom jargon, lead the witness. Well, we gotta be careful we don't do that, right? We want that to be a decision they make that God is working on their heart, that the Holy Spirit is working in them, not our decision, as much as we want to see them get saved, right? Here's, here's some things, that, uh, some questions uh, that, that I want to, want to put out there. What are some great opening questions that I feel that I like to ask when a child wants to talk about salvation? And can I tell you, there are no magic set of questions. But there are some basic truths that have to be understood. Let me give you the first thing I do is clarify. I clarify. So why did you raise your hand and want to come out and talk? That's what I'll ask. That child may lean over to me and say, Mr. Kevin, I had to go to the bathroom. I saw those people leaving, and, and I needed to, they jump, I jumped right up, and I said, I could have jumped right in the lesson, been on point number two of salvation, and the person says, yes, I gotta be saved from embarrassment because I gotta, really gotta go. We gotta be careful. We gotta clarify, why did they wanna talk? Sometimes it's a very simple question that child wants to ask you, like, you know, why did Jesus die on the cross? And we talk about that, and we answer that, okay, and they walk off. They just wanted to know, why did Jesus die on the cross? 
part of that process of, of them understanding and believing, right? But if we go, oh, they're asking, let's sit down, I'm going to go through the whole Romans road with you. No, maybe they just want to talk about that right then. And that's it. And that's okay. That's okay because they're beginning to understand God is working in their life, right? We can't assume that just because a child makes a move or asks a gospel question that they are ready to be saved. So clarify. Second thing is this. If they, if they say, I need to get saved or I want to ask Jesus into my heart, be careful with that one because children think very literally. They think there's going to be a little man living in this organ in this thing that pumps blood, okay? So be careful or I want to be a follower of Jesus. Then I, I ask an open-ended question based on what they say like, well, well, why do you need to get saved? Why do you want to become a follower of Jesus? And here are some of the responses you'll get sometimes. Well, my sister got baptized last week, and I want to get baptized. My friend got baptized, and I know if I get baptized, I'm going to be a much better person if I do that. Well, they don't have an understanding of what baptism is, right? If they make that statement, they don't understand. Or they say this, I want to go to heaven because my, all of my family members are going to heaven, and I want to go to heaven too. Are those the answers? I mean, that's, yeah, that's an answer that we need to think about. But is that the answer we're looking for? What are we listening for? I am a sinner. I need a Savior. That's what we're listening for. This child understanding their need for salvation. Romans 3.23 is that verse. Most of you know it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If they don't understand this basic concept of a sinner needing a Savior, they are not ready. They are not ready. And I know as a parent, we have this huge desire, a God-given desire to see our kids saved and therefore safe. But we can't push them into a decision they don't truly understand and are making for the wrong reason. That would deceive them. So what if they say, I, I have sin. I need, I need Jesus to save me. What if that's their answer? I need a Savior or something like that. We move on to the next thing, right? To talk about how Jesus saves us. Those are some fairly bigger concepts. And I gave you two verses there. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you realize because you're a sinner, you're going to die? And not just physically, but forever and ever because of our sin, we are cursed and we're going to be separated from God forever and ever and ever. That's kind of tough to hear, all of us in here. But then it says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has this gift he offers to us and somehow it's, it's connected through Jesus. They need to understand that concept, right? And then we go on to Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his love toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We deserve it, but God, the only one, Jesus, God the Son, the only one, came and took our place on the cross. He died for us. He's the only one that could do that. He was the only sinless Son of God, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Remember John the Baptist? He's the only one that can do that. So they need to understand what Jesus has done. Have a discussion with them about that. You'll know. You'll understand right there. If they're kind of looking off past you, you're, you're having to call them back in. I mean, you're saying, and you're like, ah, uh, and they're looking back. They're not paying attention. They're not ready. I've had to send kids back 
Because they're just, they're sitting there, they're thinking it was something else. They're coming out there, they're not ready. But you will know, you will know when they are in tune, when they understand. Now let me back up for just a minute. What about that one? You say, what do I say to that kid that's come out there and, and they're looking off into space and they don't understand? Say this to them. Say, there is going to come a day when you're going to be ready to make this decision. And I want us right now, before we leave, to pray that God's going to tell you the truth, reveal to you the truth, and in that special day, you're going to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. And a lot of times that kid is around, okay, they'll pray, you pray with them, you take them back, you let them go back to play, whatever. Pray with them. That's what we need to do. But then those ones that understand, their heart is tender. There may be even tears coming out of their eyes because they've realized that they're sinners, that they're desperately needing Jesus. They're under conviction, and they are so ready to believe. They need to pray right then that prayer. They don't need to have all this stuff laid out, a discussion. You know that their heart is ready. What they have said is true, and you need to pray with them right then. And they pray, and they pray the sweetest prayer, and you sit there, and you see a miracle happen. That's an amazing thing. If you've never experienced it, I challenge you, when you get to experience that, to see a person who's gone from death to life, from hell to heaven, from unsaved to saved, from unchanged to changed, and they open their eyes, and you see that, you witness that. It's not about you, it's what God does in them. That's a pretty miraculous thing. When that person is changed, and folks, that's what we desire that's what we desire. We don't want them to be deceived. We want God to change them through faith. That belief, uh, that, the prayer, we need to pray, but that belief is already happening inside the heart of that student. James says here in verse 19 that the demons have a head knowledge of God. They stood in the presence of God and yet were deceived and walked away. Works apart from faith is a great deceiver because it puffs us up. It tells us we are good. We deserve salvation. No, we don't. No, we don't. We have to also be careful that our works are kept in check even after salvation. They are not for our glory, but for God's glory. And James uses two great illustrations from two very different people. Look at verse 21. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. The patriarch, Abraham. Boy, did he have to do all these things? I mean, he left his land. But in that faith journey that Abraham went down, you know what? God tested him, didn't he? In our faith journey, as we walk along, guess what's going to happen with us? God is going to test us. What are we going to do with that? Is our faith going to stand up to it? Boy, we see Abraham. What did God ask him to do? Go and sacrifice your only son. That son, by the way, that I promised the many nations through. Go and, sacrifice, go and sacrifice your son. That pagan thing that people did, the, the idolatrous things that people in your land do, go and do that. Can you see Abraham sitting there scratching his head thinking, huh? God, what are you talking? 
But we, we see Adam's faith, Abraham's faith, when he takes his son Isaac. And what does he do when they're getting ready to go up the mountain? They get the wood. They get the stuff to start the fire. Isaac said, Dad, where's the sacrifice? What does he say? You're it? No, he didn't say that. What does he say? God will provide. Wow. Folks, I don't know that could have, if I could have done that. But our faith is going to get tested. Are we going to pass that test? Because our works prove it. Our faith, prove our faith. Verse 22 tells us that his faith was completed by his works. This work completed means bring to maturity. Boy, don't you think that God brings those tests of our faith into our life to allow us to become more like him? To allow us to go through circumstances so that that person later on that we come across who's going through that same trial, we can be a blessing to them and help them through that. Isn't that a reason why God allows us to deal with those things? I believe it is. You know, we, we try and we strive to be Christ-like. Guys, what did they do to him? And we need to think through this too. When we pass from this life to the next, you know what our goal ought to be? To be a very small change, shedding this old body, getting a new one. But who we are, be a very small change. That needs to be our goal in life of growing and maturing in our faith. If you look at your life and you say, you know what, I'm no greater in my faith right now than I was five years ago, something's wrong. Something's wrong. It says here, an obedience like that can only come from the fact, and it's retold in verse 23, it says, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. And then James illustrates with a different person. Look at verse 25. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Abraham was known for his life of faith. Rahab is known for her life of sin. But we know that something happened in her belief and in her faith to risk her own life to help and spare the men of God and send them out another way. She was different. She had been changed. She would not have done that. Folks, from the greatest to the least, faith in God changes people. Faith in God changes people. Do you have faith in God this morning. And I ask that in two ways. First of all, salvation faith. Have you ever made that decision to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior? We talked about it with kids, but you may have been sitting there thinking, you know what? I don't know that I've made that decision. You can make that decision today. But there's also faith, living faith, every day that we live and learn to trust God in whatever circumstances come our way and by faith Believe him. Trust in him. Do you have faith in God this morning? You know, it's easy to say yes in here. But how are your actions proving it as you live out there? Would you stand with me?
God, it is a difficult thing to truly live by faith. God, to do the things that you asked us to do on a daily basis, to live like Jesus lived, God, it's not for the weak. God, we may even right now need to come to you and confess some things, that ways that we've been living as believers that should not be a part of our life. Maybe there's one here, maybe there's many here who have never trusted you with saving faith. And God, right now, they need to pray. pray. It's not a magic prayer, but a prayer between you uh, and them that says, God, I've blown it. God, I believe, I know that I'm a sinner. I understand that. I have made my life an absolute mess. But I also believe that Jesus came and died on the cross in my place. He died on that cross that I deserve to die on. And right now, this very moment, I place my full faith and trust in his work on the cross. God, forgive me. God, come into my life by the power of your Holy Spirit and change me and make me new. God, thank you for your plan of salvation for all of us. God, if there is somebody that prayed that prayer this morning and really meant it, and they've been changed, I pray they would tell somebody, maybe even come forward in this service to tell somebody that I prayed and I received Christ as my Savior today. For those uh, of us that are here that maybe need to do business with you in other areas, God, I pray you would work. Let your Holy Spirit speak to hearts, God, and help us to be willing to do what you ask us to do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.